Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. On our last episode, we examined the final part of Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's opening statement to the trial's jury. On today's episode, we will examine the first part of the opening statement by one of Travis McMichael's defense attorneys, Bob Rubin. And then, as Rubin's narrative arrives at the day that Mr. Arbery was killed, we will bring in our consulting producer, Paul Butler, for his take on Rubin's use of language in his opening. That's all coming up after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bob Rubin rises on behalf of Travis McMichael, introduces himself, and then begins to present a starkly different perspective on the case from that presented by Prosecutor Dunikowski. For those of you who may not remember from two weeks ago or, or whom I never met, my name is Bob Rubin. And along with Jason Sheffield, who I think you all met, we represent Travis McMichael. This case is about duty and responsibility. It's about Travis McMichael's duty and responsibility to himself, to his family, and to his neighborhood. And it's about your duty and responsibility as jurors. The state talked about actions based on assumptions. I'm going to talk about facts, facts in this case. Travis McMichael is 35 years old. He's single, and he has a five-year-old son named Everett. From 2007 until 2016, Travis McMichael was in the United States Coast Guard. He was a boarding officer in the Coast Guard, which means he was authorized to make arrests. He was authorized to do investigations. He was authorized to do searches. He was authorized to use his weapon when appropriate. In order to become a boarding officer, he took the training that allowed him to do the law enforcement activities that he did for nine years. He learned how to do searches and seizures. He learned what probable cause was, a legal term that you'll hear more about. He learned how to use firearms in a safe, effective way. He learned how to use force in compliance with his training. The training he had is scenario-based training. It is repetitive training so that if you're ever in a real-life situation where you need to make use of force decisions, you're relying not just thinking back, you're relying on muscle memory. He was training the trainer. He was training his fellow Coast Guardsman on the law enforcement activities, on how to be a boarding officer. This use of Travis McMichael's Coast Guard experience could prove to be a double-edged sword, 
particularly the suggestion that he acted on muscle memory. As we mentioned in episode one, the training in advanced weapons, active interdiction, and conflict resolution that Travis McMichael would have received as a member of the Coast Guard suggests that he would have been familiar with the safety precautions for a wide range of weapons and that he should have known the basic rules of engagement in dealing with an unarmed civilian. And while Bob Rubin may claim Travis McMichael thought Mr. Arbery was armed, the prosecution will likely counter that all the available evidence suggests that that was an unreasonable assumption and that the Coast Guard trains its officers in restraint and conflict de-escalation, not instinctive muscle memory gun firing. After he left the Coast Guard, and in 2020, Travis was working for Metson Marine as a coxswain. He's working at the naval base, moving boats around. He was living at home with his mom, Lee, and his father, Greg, his sister, Lindsay, and his uh, son, Everett, who was then three years old. He was living at home because the apartment he was living in previously had been sold by his landlord. So he needed to live back at home, save some money so he could go back out on his own again. He was living, as the state told you earlier, in Satilla Shores. Bob Rubin shows the jury a map of the Satilla Shores neighborhood. Satilla Shores is a quiet, scenic, middle-class neighborhood, the kind of neighborhood where parents let the kids ride around on their bikes, the kind of neighborhood where when you're my age, you go for a walk after dinner, the kind of neighborhood that we all kind of aspire to live in. It's safe. It's beautiful, you work in the yard, you play on the river. This is the family and community that Travis McMichael felt a duty and responsibility to during the course of events in 2019 and 2020. This is the family and community that made him willing to put himself at risk to help the police detain Ahmaud Arbery. The video that you watched probably five times in the state's opening statement, doesn't even begin to tell the story in this case. It's like looking through that knot hole in the fence and thinking you see the whole baseball field and you really only see the outfield. The case really begins months before in 2019 because Satilla Shores was a neighborhood on edge. Crime had gone up. It wasn't violent crime, it was property crimes. The kind of crimes that are unsettling, the kind of crimes that are scary because you don't know who's coming onto your property, who's in your car ransacking it, who's breaking into your buildings, who's stealing your lawnmowers or your guns. And so the neighborhood was on edge. So much so that behaviors began to change by the neighbors. Kids were not allowed, some kids, to play outside after dark. Here Ruben plays to suburban fears of neighborhood crime that he seems to assume will resonate with a panel of 11 white and one black jurors. Residents of Satilla Shores installed home surveillance cameras to catch the thieves that were taking their property. And neighbors in Satilla Shores felt a duty and responsibility to each other to post on the neighborhood pages, Facebook and Nextdoor, about the crime that was happening. And you'll hear about that. The types of posts that you saw on these pages includes, this is ridiculous. My daughter always freaks out. It's getting old. I'm nervous, lock your cars. These are actual posts from that neighborhood Facebook page. As a result of this uptick in crime, of people being on edge, people were alert to suspicious behavior. 
In July of 2019, Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael were alert to suspicious behavior, long before ever encountering Ahmad Arbery. It's worth noting that Rubin cites neighborhood social media, which seems to have been driven largely by Mr. Arbery's presence on the under construction site. The unspoken fact that appears to have put the neighborhood on edge is that there was a black man who kept appearing in the homeowner surveillance video. Rubin soon turns to the under construction site at 220 Satilla Drive and its owner, Larry English. Larry English, as you heard, lives in Douglas, Georgia, but he started building a home in Satilla Shores for use as a vacation place, a getaway. He built a dock. His home is right here, the dock on the river. He had a boat on a hoist at the dock, and he had a large offshore boat in his RV garage. Eventually, because of some advice from his neighbor, Kenny Wade, who lived next door, he installed a camera at the dock and one on the back of his house, which you can't see from this photo. He was concerned about liability because kids were playing out there and they, were, you know, they would take his scraps of wood, they would hang out by the dock, but he was also concerned about theft because he had valuables at his house. He had two boats, sometimes three boats, and he parked his camper on the property, which you can't see in the picture, but you'll see eventually. Over the course of the next three, four months, he saw on his cameras at night Ahmad Arbery four times. The first time, and this is the first time his camera alerted at all, was October 25th, 2019. Now remember, he's in Douglas, Georgia. He has a cell phone. When his camera spots somebody, he gets an alert on his cell phone. But he calls the 911 number for Glen County Police, and he's scared, and he's concerned. What is this guy doing at my house at night? He's concerned not only for his stuff, but he's concerned for his family. Because what if Amy was there at the camper alone? What if his daughter, Laura, was there sleeping there that night? And she walks outside and bumps into this intruder. And he gets scared and he panics and she panics and something really, really awful happens. These are the thoughts that went through Larry English's mind when he sees this intruder in his house on October 25th, 2019. It bears mentioning that while defense attorney Rubin suggests that those were the fears of Larry English, he did not indicate that Mr. English actually articulated those as his concerns. It does seem that Rubin has calculated that the image of a white woman bumping into a black man at night might resonate with this jury. Rubin moves on to a second call by Mr. English that same night. He calls back Glen County a second time after this initial call because he calls the police to tell them that the man who's on the dock, and he describes him as plundering around, describes his tattoos, describes his hair twists, the man who was in his house plundering around, and he wants the police to confront this man and tell him, don't come back. He doesn't see him take anything. Remember, he's only got cameras on the back of the house right now. One camera, back of the house, and one camera at the dock. He wants him removed. By the time police come, and I think it's Officer Rash who responds that first time. Robert Rash, you'll hear from Officer Rash. No sign of Mr. Arbery, the man we later find out is Ahmad Arbery. 
Reuben this time specifically seizes upon a phrase that Mr. English uses to describe what Mr. Arbery was doing that night. He called it plundering around. Larry English's use of the word seemed to mean loitering or standing or waiting around idly without apparent purpose. But the generally recognized meaning of the word plundering is, of course, to steal goods, typically using force and in a time of war or civil disorder. Reuben would go on to use that expression, plundering around, 14 times in his opening statement. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so he's suspicious. But what can he do? The next alert on his phone is November 17th. November 17th, a white couple comes on his property at night, 10 o'clock at night. They park out by the porta potty that you saw in the earlier picture. The man has his belt unbuckled, comes in the house, Larry English calls 911 and he says, about a week and a half to two weeks ago, I had my stuff stolen. Mr. English had some items stolen from his boat a couple weeks earlier, and he suspected this white couple might be the culprits although he would later walk that back, telling police that he wasn't sure whether the boat was at 220 Satilla Drive or his other residence when the items were stolen. Police send an officer out. Officers go out. The couple's gone. They see nothing. Mr. English is upset and he's frustrated. He has valuables stored at the house. Stuff has been stolen. Now two people have been seen on his cameras, three people two white people and a black male. And so the next morning, November 18th, he goes and he gets his boat and he hauls it away. Figures, I just can't keep valuables in this house that's open, but is owned by him with his valuables. And so he takes the boat away. That very night, November 18th, He sees the same black male he saw on October 25th. The man we now know is Ahmad Arbery. He's back again. He's seen around the boat, not the big offshore boat, but the other boats. And according to Mr. English, he's plundering around again. He calls Glen County police again Glen County police arrive again. And again, Mr. Arbery gets away without being confronted by the police. And Mr. English is frustrated, of course. He's so frustrated that the very next day, November 19th, he has an exchange through text message with his two doors down neighbor, Diego Perez. Diego Perez is another person who believes it's his duty and responsibility to look out not just for himself, 
but for his neighbors. And so Diego has this conversation with Larry English. And he says to Diego, have you seen these people in the neighborhood? And Diego says, no, sir. I can't say I've ever seen them in the neighborhood, but I'll keep an eye out. I can respond in mere seconds, because he's only two doors down, with your permission. Larry English says, you have my permission. And Diego says, I may be able to intercept them or pen them up for the police. I may be able to intercept them or pen them up for the police. Diego Perez is taking it upon himself, if he can, to perform a citizen's arrest. I'm going to hold them until the police come. And Larry English's response to that, thank you. So November 19th, Diego Perez helps, offers to help. Officer Rash canvasses the neighborhood. He's still a mystery. He is at this point a scary mystery because he's plundering around Larry English's house and now everybody knows it. Officer Rash has canvassed the neighborhood. Larry English is talking to neighbors like Matt Albenzi, like his neighbor Diego and his wife, Brooke Perez. It's being posted on Facebook, on the neighborhood Facebook page. Word is out that stuff was stolen from Larry English's house. He's back at the house, Ahmad Arbery, on December 17th. This is now the third time seen on camera at Larry English's house. He's at night. He has no legitimate reason for being there. And remember, although you're seeing him through infrared cameras, it is pitch black in that house. There is no light. There's no lights on, there's no light switch, no light bulbs. It is pitch dark. And on December 17th, the Mott Arbery is seen plundering around <clears throat> again, again in the area where the boats were located in that RV garage. Police are not called that night. There's no 911 call. Larry English can't remember why he didn't call police. He may have been sick and not seen this video until much later. And you saw the clip of the video with Ahmad Arbery walking outside the house, looking around again, and taking off into the neighborhood. And the question remains, was he out for a jog? 10 o'clock at night, December 17th, or was he doing something else? And we'll never know, but it sure does look suspicious. The next time he's seen in Larry English's house is February 11th, 2020. This is now the fourth time in the house, but this time is different because this time it's not Larry English who calls the police. It's Travis McMichael. Travis McMichael was going out that night, about 7.30 at night, it's dark, to get gas, fill up his car before the next day. He had to be at work early, so he was just gonna fill up his car that night so he wouldn't have to wake up so early in the morning the next day. On his way up the street, he's at 230 Satilla, this is the exit up here, this is English's house. As he gets up here, he sees a figure dart across the street. 
And this figure, now he realizes it's a man, is lurking in the shadows 25 to 30 feet from the street, kind of staying in the shadows very furtively, catches Travis's attention. He has no idea who this is. He's never met Ahmad Arbery. But he sees this guy, and he sees this guy kind of running across the lawn, and he hides behind that red porta potty. Travis is like, this is not good. We know about a guy intruding in Larry English's house. And he stops his car, and he kind of aims his headlights at the porta potty. And knowing there is no legitimate reason for this man to be there, he starts to get out of his car to ask him why he's there. Well, this guy steps out from the porta potty, and he reaches with his left hand, I believe into his waist, as if reaching for a weapon. It scares the heck out of Travis. He sees this, he's, he's trying to get out, gets in his car and gets home where he calls 911. Travis is home calling 911. Greg McMichael overhears and he starts going up to the English house. And he's got his firearm with him. And Travis says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. Turns out Travis ends up going up there with him and Travis has his firearm. Diego Perez, who by now has been alerted by Larry English with his video clips, he goes out there, he's armed. These neighbors are going to Larry English's house not because it's fun at eight o'clock at night in February in Satilla Shores, but because it's their duty and responsibility to each other to protect each other, to do what they can to help the police stop the guy who's plundering around, breaking into Larry English's house. Again, Rubin's use of phrases like plundering around and breaking in to characterize Mr. Arbery's actions mark a stark contrast to Prosecutor Linda Dunikowski's presentation of these activities and would appear to be contradicted by the visual evidence. Officer Rash gets called. They are all out. Officer Rash, two other officers, Diego Perez, Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, all out trying to find the guy, Ahmad Arbery, who's now for the fourth time in Larry English's house. Officer Rash appreciates the help. He never tells Greg McMichael, Travis McMichael, or Diego Perez, hey guys, let the police handle this. We got this. No problem. You guys go home. He never tells them, hey, put those guns away. We don't need guns out here. Don't carry guns around here. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, no, you guys cannot stop and detain this guy if you catch him. That's a police job because it is a citizen's job to help the police. And the law authorizes that. He tells Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael that Larry English says nothing was stolen, but these guys know stuff was stolen. Everybody knows it. Larry English has already told everybody. We all know it. Stuff has been stolen. Again, Rubin presents the viral rumors from social media as a given truth in spite of the fact that Larry English has told officers the exact opposite. We're going to pause here and bring in Georgetown Law professor, MSNBC analyst, and one of the nation's most frequently consulted scholars on issues of race and criminal justice, Paul Butler, to offer his insight into this portion of Bob Rubin's opening on behalf of Travis McMichael. Paul Butler, thanks again for being with us. Hey, Carrie, it's great to be here. 
What did you make of Bob Rubin's opening on behalf of Travis McMichael? He made the best of difficult facts. Travis McMichael is the trigger man. And while legally the other defendants have the same kind of exposure, because Travis was the actual shooter, the jury is likely to focus on him. And so of all of the defense attorneys, Mr. Rubin has his challenges. And I thought that he told the story that he needed to tell. Now the question is whether that evidence will be presented in court in the same way that he suggested and whether the jury will believe his client's story. I was struck in Rubin's opening by his use of certain language, certain words. And in a bit, I'm going to get to some of the legal language that he tried to get out in front of and define, but he used references to things like neighborhood watch, social media, Facebook. He seized upon Larry English's use of the phrase, quote, plundering around, end quote, in describing Ahmad Arbery's actions in his house. He also made reference to the notion that Larry English's daughter might be sleeping in an RV or on the boat. Did you see any dog whistles or code language in Ruben's opening? It's clear that some of the defense attorneys in this case have decided to deal the race card from the bottom of the deck. We already know that Another one of the defense attorneys was concerned about the composition of the jury pool. He said that there weren't enough Bubba's, who he defined as white men over 40 Southern who didn't have college educations. And he got a jury of Bubba's and Bubbettes if that's the demographic that he wanted with only one African-American. And this comment from the defense team that, They don't want Black preachers attending the trial. So with this virtually all-white jury, to talk about a young Black man intruding on a neighborhood, running around with no shirt on, and to raise the specter of a white woman, a vulnerable white woman who is at risk from this Black man. I don't even know if I call that a dog whistle. That's pretty much explicit what he wants the jury to be focused on and concerned about. It's not just that he's putting Mr. Arbery, the victim, on trial. He's trying to dirty up Mr. Arbery, relying on stereotypes steeped in in white supremacy, relying on stereotypes that have a tragic history, especially in the American South. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us on our next episode as Paul Butler and I examine the conclusion of Travis McMichael's attorney, Bob Rubin's opening statement to the jury. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. 
Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. This episode was written by Art Montrostelli. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. <laughs>